0: Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focus on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode.
1: Welcome everyone to today's episode of Chatability. Don, we have more guests.
2: We do. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. We have we're international now too.
1: We have convinced two more colleagues to join us on this. I don't know what episode we're on, five or six or seven maybe. So we're excited that you all w- are willing to join us. We have Dr. Nicola Martin from our office in Lyon, France and Dr. Sylvie Framery, who I always say her name like an American and incorrectly, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's the best I do. They're both our Leon colleagues and I am live here with them in Frankfurt. And Don is, what is it? What do they say? Via satellite?
2: <laughs> sure. Sure.
1: <laughs> Don is not here in Frankfurt, but we have, um, we've you know, wired him in so we can all record an episode of bioconchatability. What do you guys think of bioconchatability?
3: Nice, good concept.
1: You like it? Yeah. 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 I think it is. We think it is. We're interested with ourselves, anyway. So. so we're here doing training. Don, we've talked a lot about the training that we do all over the world. People have heard us talk about that already.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I don't get to be there with you guys this this week. Likewise, Sylvie and Nicola weren't with us in Philly. But uh, yeah, we 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 train around the globe, and uh, it's it's. Brings in some interesting aspects to uh, things that people bring up regarding, uh, you know, differences in how biocompatibility might be addressed, you know, in the United States as compared to in the EU. But it, it usually when we're over in Europe, it expands beyond just the EU as well. I mean, there's usually people in attendance from, quite honestly, all over the globe. I think we had 16 countries in the room at one of those uh EU training sessions that we did?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This week is, is not different than that. I think we had 12 countries, including Singapore and Australia. And of course, then pretty much all the European Union companies, or countries, including the UK, which is or is not European at this point. <laughs> <laughs> at Let's not get
2: re- political just yet.
1: <laughs> at date of recording, they still are. <laughs> But if you're listening to this in a, maybe 90 days, they might not be, right?
3: Yeah. Right. We also had people from Scandinavia, I think.
1: Yes, so, absolutely. No, Scandinavia too. to see we've
3: got people from everywhere.
1: Absolutely. So we thought we would do a recording kind of like what we did in, in Philadelphia with, with Phil and talk about some of the things that come up this week with our audience, with our attendees here, some of the training. We do the same course globally, so we keep the course consistent and it's interesting to see the different things that come up. I expected certainly some different things to come up being in, in Europe. And, and one of the things that came up right away is the harmonization of 10993 Part 1.
0: There's a question we have very frequently. Uh, when we write documents, we are asked to uh, typically uh, continue to mention the EN ISO version of the Part 1 in addition to the ISO version, the new version, due to the fact that this a new ISO version not yet, is not yet harmonized. So this is a concern for some clients. However, uh, as we mentioned, uh, this new ISO version still covers all the uh, data and all requirements we had in the previous one. So this is not an issue from a safety side. But from a regulatory side, the clients still want that we mentioned the EN ISO version. Yeah,
1: I think I recall us even getting a response on a document. And this was probably before we started mentioning all of them, where they specifically were asking questions because we didn't reference that 2009 version.
3: Yeah, things like that can happen. Uh, That's true. We also see... Uh, notified body is actually uh, uh, clearly asking for an evaluation um, referring to the uh, new version from 2018, even if it's not <laughs> harmonized.
1: Even if it's not harmonized, right, they're like, we right. want 18.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason for that is really to use state of the art knowledge. Um, so even if the ISO part 18 from 2018, uh, sorry, uh, the ISO part 1 from 2018 is not harmonized right now, it's Still, a concentration of actual concepts and scientific knowledge for the evaluation of medical devices, and overall, it makes sense to use this because I mean it's more appropriate nowadays. That's that's the position of many notified bodies who ask for uh, using this one, uh, this one instead of uh, the old 2009 version.
1: All right. Well, I just thought you know maybe I want to step back a minute. I think I know what it means, but what does it mean when it's harmonized? And who who decides that? Obviously, it's not individual notified bodies.
0: No,
3: it's uh, something that happens at the European side. So uh,
1: It's the
0: European Commission. Yeah. The European Commission will decide to harmonize. And once harmonized, the uh, uh, standard is published in the uh, European uh, journal. official journal of the European Committee. Um, this means that the standard has been harmonized when published in this journal okay. that covers the European Union member
1: states. Okay. And European Commission then is also responsible for MDD and MDR. Right. Correct. Ah, I figured it out. Right.
3: That's probably because they're very busy at the moment with the MDR. MDR, well, that, right. That they cannot take, take time to harmonize uh, this uh, uh, ISO 3 part 1. Um, at least it's really what um, what we what we think is happening here. so it also means that at some point they will harmonize the ISO 103 part one
1: right and and is it the MDR correct me if I'm wrong, but that states like um state of the art, so would like part one be considered state of the art because it is the most current most even though they're it's not harmonized would that be? I don't know. Is that or is state of the art mainly just to test methods and test methodology? I
3: mean, the MDR is not going to mention the ISO 3 Part One, but uh, yeah, the ISO three Part One is used to uh, to try to uh, comply with uh, with uh, you know the um, M- M- MDR or any um, any um, uh, requirements from uh, from authorities. So okay. we try to use the ISO three Part One and uh, we will have to complete with some more information that's presented in the MDR as well. We'll have to use both. On some topics, they they probably are um, giving similar requirements, and on others, they complete each other as well.
0: At the end, the MDR, as previously, the MDD provide uh, things, uh, decide, and... uh, Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> requirements, right? The MDR uh, mentioned that the manufacturer must demonstrate, amongst other, the safety of its device, but does not provide any technical solutions okay. to demonstrate the safety. That's why we will use the ISO 10993 series to right. be able to demonstrate the safety of the device.
1: Excellent. Um, so... Along those lines, so I wonder, as new standards come out all the time, right? Not all the time. They don't come out that frequently. We wish they they could speed it up a little bit. But so Part 18, we're working on 10993 Part 18. Nicola's part of that, that group that's um, on the ISO committee. And you're a representative from France, even though, right. like, obviously you work for NAMSA. Yep. You're a representative from France on the ISO committee. As is Sylvie on the committees for Part Twenty Two, Part Twenty Two, especially excellent. So now, I had a question that was related to that. Oh, so when those things, we'll have the same challenges when Part Eighteen issues. We'll have the same challenges as we might go a period of time where it's not harmonized, and so there'll be the two thousand five version versus the two thousand eighteen version, and probably having to reference both of them, which there are some drastic changes coming ideally
3: yes exactly i mean the uh, the iso 3 part 18 is now in uh, fd so final drive draft iso standard it's supposed to be published uh very soon it could happen next week in one month from now it's very difficult to know right. when this will happen but it's really gonna happen very soon um i think i've um i've heard that ec who's uh, the convener of uh Working Group 14, responsible for the development of the ISO 3 Part 18 at the ISO TC194 committee. He said said that it is expected to be published at the end of 2019 or early beginning of 2020. So even him doesn't know precisely. Right. And it's going to happen in the next months for sure. But then, yeah, we will have to deal with, again, two versions of the standards with no harmonization probably in the meantime. So same, same problem, same, same problem. solution as well as yeah. for part one, right. state of the art, I would say. And usually those, those new standards still um, contain the concepts that were presented in the initial or the, the previous version. So we're not changing everything. Usually we, we precise things and, and there, are, uh, there are more practical standards.
1: Right. Um. All right, so let's go to some other hot topics that have happened this week. I think we had a lot of discussion around the use of or non-use of post-market surveillance. I guess as MDR happens and there's more and more post-market surveillance, it's how does that information become useful when it comes to biological safety. And I think we had, we had a pretty lengthy discussion here around that topic, probably more than once.
0: Yes, because typically manufacturers always want to leverage on their clinical data or post-market surveillance data rather than to perform uh, new biocompatibility or chemical tests to demonstrate uh, the safety of their new device, etc. So they want to leverage on them. And in this situation, we have to remind them that Clinical data, exposure human data can help uh, in the situation when we are talking about low risky device in contact with intact skin, uh, for which the main risks are linked to uh, potential irritation and sensitization that are clinical signs easily detectable, but post-market surveillance data as clinical data cannot help when we are talking about implants because we cannot have any information uh, regarding uh, a genotoxicity concerns for example. Right. That can take time to develop to develop into a cancer that can take s- several years and is not easily detectable quickly. And again, post-market surveillance data does not provide any uh, histopathological analysis, for example, in case of local tissue effects. Uh, So we can try using also in our uh, risk assessment post-market surveillance data, but it will really depend on the type of device we are evaluated.
3: Right. (laughs) It's... uh... That's, that's one thing uh, we can always try, but it really depends on the quality of the data, the quality the, the device considered as well. As we've said, for um, very risky devices, the level of expectations is, is very high and the quality of, of the data needed is, is uh, high as well. I mean, the expectations on the quality of those data is high. If we have also um, good data, we can, we can do a lot with it. But that means that those data have to be designed from the beginning uh, so that they can collect information that can be useful for the evaluation of uh, biological uh, uh, biocompatibility. Just knowing that a certain number of devices were sold uh, in a period of time and that there were no uh, feedback about biocompatibility problems is not enough to no. show that there is no issue. It just uh, it just tells us that nobody has complained about it. but it's it's it, we have to have better information, uh, more precise data to um, to cover biocompatibility um, uh, endpoints.
2: Yeah, and and to kind of go along with that, I I would say too though, you know, in those cases where we know that there are clinical data available, uh, I think because companies may know that they can't maybe effectively eliminate the need to do some testing because of the, that data. In some cases, I've seen companies actually just say, well, let's not even include it in the evaluation. So I, I don't know if Sylvie and Nicola, if you've, if you've seen that, but I think if it, if we know the data are out there, I think we are also, to be in compliance with the standard, have to at least look at the data for what they're yeah. telling us or not telling us. Again, it might be quality, very, very qualitative evidence of safety. But nonetheless, the, the standard does tell us to at least consider it in our evaluation.
1: All right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I think that that's going to continue to be a question that we get to continue that, that folks, I mean, honestly, companies are going to want to be able to use more of that data. And and it's hard to realize that maybe it's not as useful. We had a rather long, lengthy discussion in the last podcast with Dr. Smeraldo about this same topic. And I tried to give him some examples of what about this? What about this? He kept shooting me down. So (laughs) I've realized it's just not very useful.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Not easy to use.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what about, um, we had a lot of questions this week too, about extractions and extraction conditions, even on biological safety. And, you know, we've done a whole episode on part 12 where we talked about extractions, but Sylvie, maybe you can, you know, give some advice on customers that are trying to do testing somewhere when they have to choose those extraction conditions for biological testing. Obviously, your laboratory and your study director can help you, but I mean, do we sit down and read part 12? Is that useful or? Part 12 is useful, uh,
0: notably for biological tests. But uh, depending on uh, the category of the device, we may not apply exactly the same extraction condition. And also, depending on the market, uh, we will not also uh, use the same extraction condition. And uh, the typical example is for the cytotoxicity test. Yeah, that for sure. That need to be performed at thirty-seven degrees for seventy-two hours. Uh, for prolonged and long-term device for the U.S. markets. That is not reported in the part 5, discussing cytotoxicity, neither in the part 12, discussing the extraction condition. So, we have to uh, take into consideration the markets, but uh, for all the tests, uh, typically uh, for at least biological tests, uh, we used to use the uh, 50 degrees uh, for 72 hours extraction condition to prepare the extracts.
3: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, That sounds like a reasonable um, set of conditions to use for most extractions. Um, I think that to add to that in the chemical characterization, but that's also um, true for other, other testing, uh, all the biological tests, Something we want to to make sure of is not to degrade the device as well, so yeah. we can try also other uh, conditions, and we also have to try sometimes different uh, extraction vehicles. feasibility studies are are very uh, interesting, very important to be conducted to select the most appropriate um, extraction vehicles and eventually temperatures if uh, if we we, st- we see degradation so. Usually, fifty degrees, fifty-two hours is uh, is a, is good. But there might be a situation where you will want to reduce the temperature uh, if needed, based on the observation in a feasibility study.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, from Nicole and Sylvie, if you have ever had a, a notified body or regulator in the EU. Uh, question or challenge the use of what appears to be a standard extraction condition presented in Part Twelve, but because the extraction is sh- so short—say, seventy degrees Celsius for hours or one twenty-one for an hour—those two extraction conditions be questioned because just the duration of extraction is is so short. If you've ever heard that from a EU perspective? I've, I've definitely
3: seen it in the states before at least questioned i don't remember um such things but i think in europe try to use more the 50 degrees 72 hours um conditions at least for for biological testing i i don't think i've ever seen for european uh, dossier um, any use of 70 degrees no. 24 hours for biological testing i'm not talking about Cytotoxicity, because obviously those conditions right. would not be appropriate, but, but
2: really
1: for the preparation <laughs>
3: right. of extracts for other uh, in, in vivo uh, testing, for example. In chemical characterization, this is where we, we've already used 70 degrees, 24 hours, uh, but we, since several years, uh, as I would say, we've, we've seen 50 degrees, 72 hours being used also uh, on the chemical side. So I haven't seen Notified body is challenging 70 degrees, 24 hours. I've seen them 50 degrees, 24 hours, even for chemical characterization and even in the context of exhaustive extraction. But that, that would make more sense if you if you look at part 12 because this set of conditions isn't present uh, right. in part 12. So that was really the origin of the, of the concern.
0: Me neither. I do not have any example of notified body asking for higher temperature, for example neither example where uh, a device an implant device uh, was evaluated using 37 degrees and the notified body is asking for at least 50 degrees i only see this situation from us fda never from notified body to now
3: okay yeah, and just to finish on that, the, the the 121 for one hour, I've just never seen um, this being used. Um,
1: not a lot could tolerate that.
3: Not a lot, yeah. Maybe probably just only a, metallic devices, a pure
1: metal, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah.
3: yeah. So that's Plain probably metal. the reason, actually. Yeah. But uh, I don't. I mean, it's it's certainly not something that that is commonly used. You're right.
2: It's just the only reason, well, I won't say the only reason, but one reason it was fresh in my mind is because I saw a polymeric device this week that was extracted at 121 for an hour. And those data were being considered for submission to, uh, you know, a, a regulator. And in the EU, there were some now it was in, here in the States. OK, there were some other issues with the data but that was one of the pieces that made me just a little nervous because there's
1: there's always data issues. (laughs) There's some data
2: issues and it wasn't like (laughs) test methodology issues. It was just like, what was tested? That sort of stuff.
1: Don, we've had this discussion and Nicole and I had this discussion. I think it was Monday about um, aging and aging samples and performing biocompatibility it came up in mm-hmm. the audience um and and whether or not we should be doing biocompatibility after aging and i believe it's based on something that's in is it either in it's in part one yeah it's in part one right the yeah, yeah it mentions yeah. you should do it for the lifetime of the device or something
2: 4.7 doesn't specifically call out aging it just says lifetime the entire the, life cycle yeah. the lifetime of the device and. People have been interpreting that to have been interpreting potentially that mean aged and under. What's the
1: alternative if an implant's supposed to stay in the body for ten years? How do I do biocompatibility after ten years? Right. I mean, what is the alternative? And I know we we have there's lots of different thoughts, and I don't think there is a right or wrong way to do this. But I don't see customers, and I haven't heard from the audience where people are actually doing any sort of biocompatibility after a long period of time they're either just trying to to justify it in a way that they, they believe the materials aren't going to age and that and and honestly doing it at the beginning exhaustively or exaggerated pulls out what we can maybe assume is lifetime of the device and i, I think that's not the exact way you want to say it but in my little generic non-scientific way
3: i mean c- covering a device for its shelf life can be a can be a challenge especially if you've ever manufactured the device before, and it's the first one your company is is uh, making now. Uh, you don't have data that you can use, right? So right. You would have to generate something to to hopefully convince uh, agencies that uh, the five years shelf life duration that you've selected uh, is uh, is based on some some science. So, in in that situation, obviously, uh, maybe accelerating accelerated aging is the only option, or uh, at least uh, one of the only options you have to, to try to obtain some, some data. And you can, you can try to do that uh, and do some at least limited uh, number of maybe biological uh, and also chemical yeah, characterization. Yeah, I was thinking chemical testing. characterization maybe right. that, 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 is one of the great help. ways that to deal help. with this. The only thing is you have some time also to be cautious about what, what happens during this uh, yes. uh, aging process. Usually yes. you use elevation of temperature for a certain period of time. Uh, you also um, uh, change the humidity uh, the device is exposed to.
1: You drop so, them, you shake them, you rattle right, them, you do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so all those
3: things can um, hopefully really accelerate t- accelerate the, uh, the age of the sample, the way time... Um, during the real shelf life, will do it, but it could also go in another direction. So you you, you want to to somehow uh, try to make sure that you're not gonna create a um, name an, an edge device after this uh, accelerated aging that does not represent uh, a naturally aged yeah, device. You don't and want to change it. You don't want over- to yeah. yeah exactly. But yep. you, you don't you But cannot, you don't know. You cannot really know that either. So it's just that we have to be cautious about the data and and think about the way we do that obviously if you have uh, if you're in another situation and we're not considering um the the case of a new company making its first device and you're in a situation where you're changing something on a device for example or you already have existing data from previous devices using yeah. similar manufacturing maybe also uh, exactly identical uh, materials then here you certainly can leverage on the experience you have uh, and previous um, shelf life real shelf life uh, data that you might have to um, to help in the selection of um, the duration of shelf life for this new device because you have data mm-hmm. so many different situations here again yep
2: have you, have you nicola so have you had a uh again, a, a European regulator asks questions about or have a deficiency related to that specific clause in the new version of the standard as of yet? Yes, yes, we've seen that.
0: We have seen uh, some comment from a notified body uh, asking uh, the manufacturer regarding uh, the sustainability uh, of the biocompatibility of its device at the end of its shelf life. But it was a comment that we received before the release of the part, the new part
1: one. Oh, interesting.
0: So it's just to, uh, this just illustrate that this new principle that we have in the current part one are not new concepts. It is just that now it is mentioned in the part one, but it's not a new concept. It's something that a right. manufacturer has to demonstrate uh, at least until the shelf, the, the end of the shelf life of its device.
1: Yeah, excellent.
2: I, I, I think it just is one of those things that I don't know that you, well, it would seem logical that you can't ignore it because it's in the standard, but yet different ways that one could address it or be asked to address it can, can vary. I mean, so far in the last year, I've seen everything from just test a fresh device for biocompatibility test a fresh device and a device after accelerated aging for biocompatibility and test only a device after aging for biocompatibility. Um, I've, I've, wow. I've seen all three of them
1: streams. Yeah. yeah. I think it's open to interpretation.
2: Yeah. Especially if you don't say anything about it.
1: Yeah. You got to address it one way or another. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we're about it. Uh, our time here tonight. And we will, uh, Don, we are, we're going to wrap up and we're going to go uh, have a beer.
2: <laughs> I'm going to have lunch instead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have lunch instead. You could have a beer in about six hours. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Thank you all so much for, for being willing to to do this with us and joining us. And well, as things happen and as things change, we want to definitely have you back and, and we'll do some more. Yep fun stuff and and do more episodes. I do want to give a, a URL to the listeners if you want to learn more about the medical device regulation, in particular some tools and and uh, information that we we can share with you. You can go to www2.namsa.com/mdr. We have a whole list of resources on our website and that link will get you right to that. That's www2 dot namsa.com slash mdr and i think this about wraps it up for this episode of Chatability don
2: all right yeah yeah very nice to like i say have our our colleagues over in europe to to join us it's always good to have others and and hopefully we'll do it again
1: Thank you. Yeah. Do you guys want to say something in French that Don and I can't understand so that uh, you can make fun of us? Well,
3: we won't have fun of you. Merci à tous pour votre attention.
1: Ah. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> okay. Well, thank you all very much for listening and we'll check you out next time on our next episode of Biocompatibility.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocompatibility. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com/resources/podcast.